1: You know, Lisa, when you help manage more than $5 trillion, it's very good to listen to people who have that kind of responsibility. And we're lucky to have Greg Davis. He is the chief investment officer for the Vanguard Group. Total assets under management. I'm sorry, I misspoke. $5.1 trillion. So we
0: have a $5.1 trillion man in the office.
1: Well, it's great to be here with you today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All uh, right. Let's 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 do the uh, the sort of news stuff first, and then we can get into some details because we we want to get your thoughts on a lot of stuff. Uh, the jobs, uh, the non-farm payroll report today. Your your reaction, your thoughts.
2: You know, it was slightly weaker than what we expected, but if you take into consideration the two-month revisions of fifty-nine thousand dollars, fifty-nine thousand jobs, we thought that was uh, still a relatively strong report. You saw the unemployment rate tick down slightly. And the underemployment rate, U6, ticked down even more at 7.5%. So overall, we thought it was a solid report.
0: And just real quick, do you care about the trade tensions, or is it all just noise at this point?
2: You know, I think you have to pay attention to it. But I think at this point, it's still early on, and there is a lot of noise in that. And I think the market has really discounted, just given the you know conversations that have been happening for the last several months, that you still have to wait and see how it plays out over time. And the markets have actually held in pretty well, given that tension.
0: All right. So what are your uh, three top bets for this year?
2: So when we think about for our for our active you know our active fixed income portfolios again what we've been trying to do is trying to be a bit more defensive when it comes to the credit space given the fact that valuations when it comes to investment grade bonds and high yield are not as attractive as they were you know over the last ten years or so so we think there's been a lot of spread compression we view that as a place for us to be slightly more defensive and. Given where we are in terms of the economic cycle and what the Federal Reserve is doing, there's a risk that as the Fed goes to more restrictive policy, in emerging markets, investment grade, and high yield will also all be impacted from a negative standpoint. Investors
1: may have been complacent in getting double-digit returns in the past. Are they going to have to readjust their thinking?
2: Absolutely. If you look at where valuations are around the globe, I mean our uh, our investment strategy group has recently done our done their analysis in terms of expectations for the next 10 years. And when you look at the US equity market, the expectations there are that you'd get a 10-year annualized return of about 3.9%. When we ran the same analysis 5 years ago, the expectation was closer to 8%. The reason that means a lot today is that we still think that outside of the US, given valuations that international equities actually offer more compelling value and that the returns over the next 10 years are going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of about 6.5% or so. So, again, the rel- you know, basically saying that investors need to focus on international diversification. And the other thing I would point out is that the fact that yields have started to rise, cash, treasuries, investment-grade bonds are actually more of a compelling investment today than they were five years ago. So it's actually a, a real competing force relative to equities in, in certain cases.
0: All right, now let's get to the real issue. Let's talk about fees. Let's talk about the fact that Fidelity is trying to be you, trying to beat you, uh, by uh, to, uh, being the first fund uh, to offer zero fees, basically free funds. And this made headlines earlier this week. So, is Vanguard concerned that Fidelity is going to out Vanguard? Vanguard
2: the way we think about it look we have we have a mutual ownership structure and you know the way we see these stories playing out it's really the vanguard effect right at the end of the day because of vanguard's approach of continually lowering fees for our investors we're seeing more and more competitors continue to lower fees for their investors as well and for the overall marketplace we think that's a good thing but when you look at vanguard specifically the average expense ratio across our entire complex both index and active of which 25% of our funds are actually actively managed are Complex-wide expense ratio is 11 basis points. And although we might have some competitors out there that use a loss-leader strategy and reduce the cost in certain areas, across the board, investors still get tremendous value by coming to Vanguard in our ownership structure.
1: I just want you to go back to something that uh, you kind of alluded to, which is that investors are going to ha- going to have to get used to something different, meaning lower returns. Mm-hmm. Do you find that people feel that they will be the exception to that and as a result they make mistakes because they don't want to accept average they don't want to accept those single digit returns so they go and do things that they don't have the experience or the knowledge to actually, do with their money.
2: You know, we we saw this. We saw this. Um, you know, shortly after the financial crisis, when you had basically money market funds yielding zero, and you saw investors migrating out, taking on more risk. So they migrated out to the further end of the yield curve. First, it started with short term bonds, then it was intermediate, then it was a long end. Again, just trying to find other places for yield, and then they started going deeper in terms of credit risk by going into you know high yield, and then they started to expand that even further by going into bond like products on the equity side, REITs. High dividend yielding stocks but the great thing now is that when you look at the valuations around around the marketplace what you can see is that investors don't need to take as much risk anymore at least at this point in time you're not benefiting a lot taking on a lot of duration risk and taking on that interest rate exposure further out the curve because the curve is so flat so you can avoid having some of that volatility by being more focused on the shorter end of the curve but for most investors we would tell them to again look at their risk tolerance have a balanced portfolio around the globe, both um, equities and fixed income, and make sure that they're continually rebalancing because some of these ratios can get out of line over time.
0: So, given the fact that we're moving into a more volatile period, supposedly, um, do you think that we've seen peak passive?
2: No, I, you know, when you think about uh, no, I, I don't think that's the case. When you think about when you think about the value proposition at passive passive um, offers to investors, it's that. They, have, they, get an, they get a market return at a very low cost. And what it's been shown is that active managers really have a hard time in the long run outperforming their benchmarks, net of fees. And so unless active managers substantially, substantially reduce their fees, they're going to have a hard time in the long run beating, beating the indices. And that's going to continue to allow um, passive investing to be a very popular you know, technique for, for investors. Uh, just quickly, <clears throat> What is more overvalued today, corporate bonds, high yield, or investment-grade corporate bonds? Um, Investment-grade corporate bonds, if you look at where they are from a valuation perspective, they're somewhere around the 15th percentile um, from a spread perspective uh, over the last 10-year period. So we'd say they're pretty deeply overvalued at this point in time. I think what you have to really be cognizant of is the fact that Again, as the Federal Reserve keeps hiking interest rates, and they get to that point where they start becoming restrictive in terms of economic growth, that part of the market is definitely going to be at risk for spread widening.
0: So at what point uh, will they be restrictive? I mean, people are widely expecting the Federal Reserve to raise rates in September. Mm -hmm. Are you expecting two rate hikes this year? And at what point next year, how many rate hikes would be a mistake?
2: So... We're expecting we're expecting two rate hikes this year, both in September and December, and we're expecting somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three rate hikes next year. You know, by the time we get to the second half of next year, we could actually start approaching the restrictive territory. And the question becomes, is there still enough um, momentum in the economy, both from a GDP growth and an inflation and jobs perspective, that the Fed keeps going? And if that's the case, we may end up going too far.
0: All right. So what are the chances of a downturn next year? I know a lot of people have been talking about uh, possible a 2020 recession.
2: So in, in 2019, our expectations based upon our models are showing, you know, um, the probability of a recession in the next 12 months have gone from about 5 percent to up to 10 percent. Now, what we're expecting towards the tail end, the tail end of 2019, if we're looking forward a year from there, we'd expect we'd expect that the recession risk starts to rise to something like 30 to 40 percent. Um, over the course of the next year. So that would take us through the end of 2020.
1: Today, we got the news that the Intercontinental Exchange plans to launch uh, a regulated physical Bitcoin futures contract and warehouse in November.
2: What's the conversation at Vanguard about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin? we're not fans of we're not fans of, of, of Bitcoin um, We are very interested in the technology that underlies Bitcoin in terms of blockchain and what it can do in terms of increasing efficiency when it comes to settling transactions, receiving index data and things of that nature But the concept of investing in Bitcoin we think that's a bit of a speculative bubble All
0: right so the blockchain, trend perhaps is not more hype than it is reality? Because there have been some studies that show that.
2: No, we think there's real potential there All in right. terms of increasing efficiencies. And uh, and again, that's that the reason we're interested in that is because to the extent that can help us drive down costs even further, we think there's value there.
0: So what about flows? What are you seeing there? And uh, is there some divergence between institutional flows and individual flows right now?
2: So we haven't seen a big divergence. Um, so this year, this was through June. Um, we have taken in about a hundred billion in cash flow, and that's been broken up between. I'd say about half of that was in U.S. equities, with the uh, in in the equity market, with the majority going into index products. And then we've had uh, you know fair flows. The rest broken up between um, fixed income as well as money markets. So money markets has really seen a lot of growth this year, just given the fact that the curve has flattened so much. Uh,
1: the flows that you're talking about. Do people look at the expense ratios first rather than the product?
2: I think informed investors will always look at the expense ratio first. Um, you know, when, when they've made the decision that they want to invest in a money market product or a actively managed fund, the expense ratio is something they should always take a look at. Uh, and especially in an environment where you're expecting returns, whether or not it's on the bond side or even on the equity side, to be somewhat muted relative to what we have experienced historically Expense ratios make a big difference. It's eating more and more of your returns if you're in a high cost product relative to a low cost product.
0: Do you think we're ever going to see a fund that actually pays investors to invest with it?
2: You know, there's all kinds of marketing gimmick gimmicks, so I'm not sure. You know, maybe it's possible. I I, I don't. Know. I really don't know.
0: I, I mean, like, do you think that it, we're going to be close to zero for almost all funds in five years?
2: I, I think it's difficult to tell, but I would I would I would expect that you will see this continued this continued impact of you know. Firms that have economies of scale will continue to lower prices, and the firms that are you know, higher cost producers will continue to struggle. Quickly, what's your biggest mistake you've made over the last 12 months? I, I would say we were probably, as a firm, we were probably a bit slow when it comes to, um, uh, a bit too early, I should say, when it comes to um, reducing our exposure to investment-grade credit. Uh, again, we expected that uh, spreads would widen out at some point in time, and we were a bit too early, to, a bit too early to that trade. Um, so I'd say that was probably a bit of a, a bit of a miss from our perspective.
0: But not a miss that you've seen hundred billion dollars of inflows this year, and that you are a five point one trillion dollar man, Greg Davis. Thank you so much for being with us. It is such a pleasure having you. My pleasure. Greg Davis is chief investment officer at the Vanguard Group. Vanguard's Total assets under management, $5.1 trillion. It is an economy unto itself. China's yuan is headed for its worst weekly loss in its history. Joining us now to talk about that, some of the latest efforts out this morning from the PBOC to try to uh, mitigate some of those losses is Stephen Englander, global head of G10 FX Research North American Macro Strategy for Standard Charter Bank. He is also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. We really enjoy having you on. What's your take on the move that the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, took this morning to try to, mm, how should we say this, I guess, perhaps prevent people from speculating too much on the UN's drop?
3: Um, First, thank you for having me on. Um, I I think what, what you're seeing is that the Uh, Chinese asset markets have been increasingly under pressure. The equity market has been underperforming, uh, not just the U.S. equity market, but even neighboring Asian equity markets. Um, It it feels as if uh, there's a perception that China is is much more vulnerable to these trade tensions than, say, was thought a month ago or even even two months ago, and that's translating into both weakness in equities and weakness in in the exchange rate. Um, What the Chinese authorities want, I think, is one to keep money easy onshore, because there's both an onshore market you know, in continental China and an offshore market um, outside of China. Uh, they want to keep monetary conditions easy onshore you know, for domestic economic reasons, because their, their economy has been kind of wobbling a little bit, nothing dramatic, but not performing as well as they would have wanted. At the same time, they don't want by keeping money easy onshore to encourage money to leave, so they're saying, look, if you, if you want to um, do these transactions, you actually have to basically like post the margin and, and just keep it on deposit with the PBOC. So it makes it harder and discourages the you know movement of capital from onshore to offshore, and uh, in some sense should mitigate the the weakness in CNY uh, in, in CNY and CNH.
1: Stephen Englider, we were listening earlier today to an interview with Larry Kudlow, director of the National Economic Council. Larry Kudlow said he believes that China's currency is weakening and that it's a lousy investment. He also said that China's China has a weak economy. Do you agree?
3: Well... You know, I've I've been here long enough. I've seen the dollar at one sixty against the euro and and you know, now it's at one sixteen. So uh currencies weaken, currencies strengthen. I'd say the Chinese the Chinese economy it's it's it, as I said before it's disappointing it's not doing as well as some people, you know many people expected it, but it, it's not in free fall by any means it's just like a, you know call it a bump and I think the uncertainty uncertainty about the the tariffs is adding to some of the pressure but it, it's not a crisis it's it's. Uh, you know, it's it's an irritant. That is the way I would
1: characterize it. So, if it's an irritant, would this be a good opportunity to invest in China?
3: Well, you know, I, I think if you're investing in China, you're you're making uh, a bet that the tariff issues will be resolved in in a kind of you know, what most people expect to happen, which is that the uh, U.S. and China will have very low tariffs, and they'll keep on talking about intellectual property, which is a much more complicated issue. Um, if you believe that that's going to be the ultimate outcome, notwithstanding the short-term gyrations, um, you know, China would be very interesting, given given how much it's sold off. But, you know, you you have to be... Clear that you, you have a strong view that this will be resolved in a way where we don't, where everyone doesn't end up with twenty five percent tariffs on each other.
0: Stephen, you've been uh, covering the FX markets and engaged with them for about two decades, and uh, you've seen a lot of different phases. Has it ever been harder to kind of understand the different wins at play than it is right now, given the rhetoric and the tweets and and all of that uh, mixed with uh, a lot of easing? A lot of central bank intervention.
3: Well, you know, I, I, I'd say in, in, in as it's happening, it always seems hard. Uh, it's, very, it's very hard to know what the next 1% or 5% move on the dollar is going to be. Um, and I'd actually say it's not much worse now. I, I think it's, for many of us, the, the political dimension, both the geopolitical and the domestic political dimension, is uh, an additional complication. Uh, but you know, you look at volatility in in FX markets; it's far from from being extreme. So I, I think it's, it's something you just adjust to.
1: Stephen, taking a look at the uh, dollar euro right now one fifteen eighty nine pound sterling one thirty yen one eleven. You think the dollar is going to continue to strengthen?
3: You know, I, I think the dollar is strengthening on 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 um, these tariff concerns because it, it is behaving like a safe haven. Um, I think investors have become, you know, are flirting with the idea that the U.S. may actually have a good economy, notwithstanding the slope of the yield curve and some of the other questions that have been raised. And and so I think that there's uh, an emerging set more comfort with the U.S. economy than, say, there was a month ago, two months ago, or or six months ago. Um, So that's all all our positive. But I'd say overwhelmingly the sentiment on Europe is so negative. That Europe, you know, if Europe just holds its place, uh, that will be a euro positive. So, I, you know, I, again, the euro dollar story is one that, you know, I, I don't think is going to be the main story. The story could be how the euro and the dollar t- together do against the rest of the world. Um, but, you know, the usual sort of dollar up or down against the euro, um, I don't think that's going to be a dramatic issue in in, in coming months because both of them have strength.
0: All right. I'd love to get your view uh, just real quick on what this means if we are seeing dollar strength that will continue because people are realizing that the U.S. economy is doing well. What does this mean for emerging markets?
3: Well, you know, it's going to be difficult for them. Um, emerging markets, you know, again, there's, there's been a sell-off certainly on the, on the currency side, and, and there certainly valuation is there. But the question is, you know, where's the sizzle? You know, what are you buying? Is, you know, if, if growth is coming primarily from the U.S., it's not very goods-intensive. Intensive, it's not very commodities-intensive. So, you know, the question is, what is going to sort of be the trigger to uh, get people back into the emerging markets. And, and again, valuation is very important at a certain point they get so cheap that they can only go up. Uh, but I, I think you'd like to see some of, you know, some indications that the economies are, are are stabilizing and surprising to the upside.
1: Stephen, just quickly, does this mean that commodity-based currencies will continue to weaken against the dollar?
3: Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a structural story here, which is um, you know, we buy services on the margin. We don't. We don't buy commodity-intensive goods. You know, Europe is growing, but they buy services as well. I, I, I think it. You know, th- there's a supply-demand balance, but sort of an uphill battle for for the commodity producers, especially if China is looking soft.
1: All right, we got to leave it there. Stephen Englander is the global head of G10 FX research and North American macro strategy for Standard Charter Bank. And he is also a Bloomberg opinion columnist.
0: Will the explosion of money creation catch up with the U.S. economy? This is one of the most difficult questions of the moment, especially as the Federal Reserve continues to uh, raise interest rates uh, bit by bit to try to get to some normal level. To weigh in on this, I'm very, very happy to say we are going to be joined by Amir Sufi, professor of economics and public policy at Chicago's Booth School of Business. Uh, Amir, thank you so much for being with us you Thanks, both, Lisa. I'm, I'm super, I'm really, I'm excited to hear your perspective. You wrote uh, The House of Debt, uh, which was widely thought to be a very accurate and interesting look at the explosion of debt leading to the financial crisis. Uh, you just posted an article uh, that was published again, uh, a rise in household debt systematically predicts a decline in subsequent GDP growth. This was a line from the report. Where are we now in terms of credit explosion and what does it say about growth going forward?
5: So one of the, uh positive signs is that the household debt expansion during this recent cycle is not nearly as dramatic as what it was from 2002 to 2006. And that's mostly because, you know, most of household debt is associated with mortgages and housing. And the boom we saw from 2000 to 2007 was just unprecedented in history. Nowadays, we have more auto debt more student debt, but just the magnitude of the increases is not nearly as large. So that's one positive sign. Um, I think, generally, we are at a point in the cycle where it seems like credit is very easily available for corporations, for firms, and for households. And that generally forecasts probably lower growth going forward, but I don't think we're anywhere near where we were in, say, 2006 or 2007.
4: Speak, if
1: you can, a little bit about the debt of the government and what that does to financial markets.
5: So in our research, we looked at uh, 40 countries going about back to the, about the 1960s, and we actually don't find uh, evidence that a rise in government debt tends to predict financial crises or recessions with the same power as rises in private debt. Why private debt, I mean both debt to non-financial corporations and to uh, households. So that seems to be uh, one of the most more robust correlations is the private debt predictability. Government debt doesn't seem to predict as well. What usually happens is there's a crisis caused by private debt expansion, and then the government debt goes up in response. And as we saw in Europe in 2010 and 2011, that can often cause problems. But it's not the rise in government debt that generally causes uh, either financial crises or a slowdown in economic growth.
0: So just to sort of underscore this, household debt is really the best predictor. Explosion of of household debt is the best predictor of the magnitude of the next downturn. Corporate debt, uh, a bit but less so, and government debt, not as much at all.
5: That's right. That's right. And one of the nice things is we've actually seen examples since the publication of our book. uh, The. You know, economy in the world that had probably the most severe recession over the last five years was Brazil. In Brazil in 2015 and 16, they had one of the worst recessions they've had on record. And in our view, it's unsurprising that in the decade before, there was just a tremendous expansion of household debt, auto debt, payday loans, mortgage debt. Uh, And again, I think that's one of the big reasons why Brazil had such a big downturn uh, from 2015 to 2016.
0: So I guess that this is really interesting to think about right now because you have banks like Goldman Sachs and many others trying to ramp up consumer lending and you're seeing credit card outstandings going up. Uh, Auto loans have been a robust area of lending for a while. I'm just wondering, at what point do you start to get concerned that we're heading toward another uh, sort of peak that could uh, foretell some pain?
5: Yeah, I mean, I've been looking at the data, especially in the auto market and the credit card market, as you point out, those are really the markets that seem hot um, in terms of the willingness of creditors to provide more financing to consumers. Uh, There's a few questions about what the trigger would be that would cause those markets to suffer. I've been thinking a little bit about a rise in gas prices, for example, if gas prices were to rise $1 or $2 per gallon, you could imagine a lot of people with a lot of auto debt don't have much room to adjust, especially if you think about drivers for Uber and Lyft. So it doesn't seem like a disaster is imminent to me, but I'm thinking about the kinds of economic shocks that would lead to a situation in which consumers have a difficult time paying back the interest payments in principal on those credit cards and auto loans. And the rise in gas prices is one that I kind of think of. And of course, any labor income shock to the economy would, would be dangerous in all of our research there's usually some shock that you need in order to get the high household debt to then really have a bad effect on the economy the collapse in house prices for example in 2007 and 8 is really what happened then
1: what effect does the deregulation of financial industries have on the health of an economy
5: well one of the big uh, points of our recent research is to show that deregulation in the long run and there's a lot of research to support this, improves financial efficiency, it improves uh, the allocation of credit uh, and growth of an economy. But in the short to medium run, think about three to five years, it sometimes can basically amplify the business cycle. That is, a deregulated banking sector kind of throws a bit more fuel on the fire during booms, and then subsequently oftentimes we see more severe recessions. Uh, The 1989 to 1991 recession, for example, was preceded by a huge wave of deregulation in the banking sector that we argue in some of our research led to an expansion uh, of lending, especially to real estate and commercial real estate, which then made the recession of 1989 to 1991 worse than it otherwise would have been.
0: You know, one of the biggest explosions in debt and and consumer debt of late has been really in the student loan area. And, you know, one question I've had with a number of analysts is how much do people just simply ignore this because they're backed by the federal government? And how much ought people pay attention to this uh, as as a potential sort of uh, fragile, fragile node?
5: That's a great point. I think uh, the first point you made is quite important in that most of that debt is being provided or backed directly by the federal government. In that sense, there's not much of a risk that there's going to be a student debt default crisis that will precipitate a broader banking crisis or financial crisis. So in that sense, it's different than mortgage debt or auto debt or some of the other markets that we worry more about. I think when we think about student debt, it's not so much the cyclical worries we have. It's more a longer-run drag on consumption, especially for younger and, say, middle-aged Americans who have a lot of student debt. And what does that mean about the overall U.S. economy? It just seems like the U.S. economy has a very hard time generating the kind of demand that is needed to sustain high growth. And we either try to sustain that demand through more credit through through boosting the economy through lower uh, you know lower interest rates by the Fed, um, and now student debt to me just is another drag that's going to make it harder in the long run for us to generate the kind of the kind of uh, consumption that we need in order to sustain the economy.
1: Just quickly, about 20 seconds. Uh, do non bank financial companies and the expansion of their credit facilities amplify the business cycle?
5: Yeah, one of the points of our recent research is really to look at the important role of non-banks, especially during the 2000 to 2007 cycle. And now there's a lot of research in, in the academic sphere about, you know, FinTech and, and just how many, for example, mortgages are now being originated by non-traditional financiers. Uh, think about Quicken and, and some of the other uh, lenders. And the fact that they're less right. regulated, the fact that they have less skin in the game, you know, is, is something that, that one wants to worry about when we're thinking about the quality of those loans.
1: Thank you very much, Amir Sufi, professor at the Chicago Booth School of Business. Thanks for listening. For more more details about the job market, we turn to Tom Gimbel. He is the chief executive of LaSalle Network. It is a national network for job placement. Tom, thanks very much for being with us. Can you explain why we don't see wages rising as fast as many would like?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Number one, we're in a global economy. So it's not, it's not as domesticated, obviously, as it used to be. So we're not competing against our neighbors in the cul-de-sac or the high-rise for jobs. So we are competing against people in, in India, in China, in, in Latin America. And when you're doing that and those companies um, are not at the same level of compensation and societally-wise, you're going to have people that are paid less. So it's not necessarily just that our economy is doing well. It's what labor can be acquired for. So that is still a major issue.
0: So, Tom, just to push back a little bit, because we hear about shortages of certain types of workers, uh, shortages of construction workers, of truck drivers, of plumbers and builders and all sorts of uh, industrial jobs here in the U.S. Would there not be a shortage if perhaps these these companies just offered more money?
6: unfortunately that's that's not the case and the reason being is look at truck drivers where there there's a huge shortage and companies are willing to pay a lot more but people don't want to be truck drivers now there's reasons behind that where to drive a commercial truck over state lines you have to be at least 21 years old so you get people that don't get their college degree that start in a career when they're 18 and they're not going to make that shift we've also seen a situation due to the the quote-unquote gig economy where people are doing stuff that are are no skills required, and non-office jobs or construction jobs that are easier on the body, like being an Uber driver, and that's taking people away. So now you've got where we really have gone from manufacturing and distribution economy to service economy, and so we're seeing that just paying more isn't going to do it unless you're targeting the right people. And that's where businesses have to evolve, is where they're going to find the people, how they're targeting the people, and the most important thing that hasn't been touched on in this economy is training and development to acquire and retain staff.
1: Well, do uh, do job applicants have the uh, the skills and the experience necessary for the uh, jobs in growing areas like technology, healthcare, uh, logistics, yeah, and, the, and the,
6: there really is. It's a tale of two economies, right? It's the blue-collar economy we were just talking about, and then it's the white-collar economy um, of technology and sales and marketing, and that's where the, the discrepancy is. And so when you look at the long-term unemployed, that number really didn't change in this report and hasn't for some time, because those folks, they're, they're out of this economy. They don't have the skills gap, to, or they, because of the skills gap, they can't get back in unless they move downstream into a lower-level position or a blue collar job and they don't want to so what we have to do in the skills gap is figure out a more college graduates are going to get jobs than ever before and we're not seeing any slowdown in that area and number two if companies really need people to continue to grow profits and revenue and shareholder value they need to spend more money in uh, training and development
0: so One thing that I'm trying to understand as we focus on the average numbers that we get out is how bifurcated is the market for jobs between sort of the the top earners and the low earners? Are we seeing faster wage uh, gains at the top of the income sphere versus the lower one? Yeah I I do believe that exists
6: and what ends up happening due to the advent of technology is that jobs on the lower end become easier due to the technolo- technologically advanced advancements. Right. So so if due to the technological advances that people either have to continue to grow to to grow their career, but if they stay at the same level, the jobs get easier. So they're not going to get paid more for doing the same work. When you look at the executive level side and why those salaries increase, it's because people are learning, growing and being promoted into those roles. And they're getting paid as their advancement and their skill set rises. It's not as simple to say people who make more money are going to grow faster. They're growing faster because they have the ability to make more money. And that gets lost in the equation. It's not simply keep the low people oppressed and and pay the rich people more. It's about what are they accomplishing and are they growing?
1: Tom, what accounts for the lack of summer jobs that are available for young people?
6: Well I think there's a variety of reasons. I think what you see a lot more happening is college kids and high school kids want to do internships. So if you grow up in an area where you believe that you're going to go to college and have a white-collar career, people want to start in that area as, as soon as they can. And so what ends up happening is the hourly jobs, the delivering pizza, the retail jobs, those end up going to lower-income people who companies know are going to be there, so there isn't as much seasonality and summer work as there used to be. And I think a lot of this goes Goes to the, the social mediaization of America is that when kids are seeing that on Shark Tank and through Instagram of 18 20 25 year old kids that are making hundreds of thousands millions of dollars at an early age what do I need to do to get there as fast as possible and that's not about taking an hourly job at the local retail store
0: you know Tom Pim is talking about this he has a daughter I have a son we're both looking for them to go bring in their worth right He's nodding at me. Uh, I mean, I'm partially kidding. But actually, I think that they would probably uh, enjoy having the responsibility. Uh, Tom, just going forward, I'm trying to figure out when people the thing that people talk about is the slack in the labor market. Are there more people who are on the sidelines who will get brought in as this labor market continues to improve? What's your take on that?
6: If you're on the sidelines in this economy, it's because you want to be on the sidelines. And what I mean by that is you may not like the position that you can go and play in the game, but you can play, right? So doing the sports analogy, you may want to be a quarterback, but if the position that's open for you that the the coach likes is at wide receiver, if you want to play in the game, be the wide receiver. Don't complain that you're not the quarterback. And so the white-collar analogy is you may have had a job doing accounting or finance. In this economy, if you can't get a job doing accounting and finance, then you're not good enough to be at it. So you've got to take a job at a lower level. It might be administrative, might be in a call center, might be blue-collar. So, but if you want a job and you want to make money and you don't have one in this economy, you're the problem.
0: So then 30 seconds, if you're the pro- if, if you're saying to these people you're the problem and there still is um, a pretty low prime age participation rate relative to history. What's that all about? 30 seconds. It's
6: about accountability. Right, So the participation rate of people is, it, it, what happened during uh, the recession in the, in the 30s was people would they'd double up and have multiple families living in houses and sell apples on the street for a dime. And what we had coming out of 2009 was an entitlement situation, and people think the government's going to be there to support them. And today we're in a situation where there's a skills gap, yet there's a ton of jobs available, blue-collar and white-collar. People need to get off the couch and take get back in the game.
0: There you go. Tom Kimball with some tough talk. Tom Kimball, founder and chief executive officer for LaSalle Network based in Chicago. Uh, He said just uh, in some notes to us ahead of this that he has been in this business for more than 25 years staffing. And this is the best jobs market he has ever seen. So there is no excuse. If somebody doesn't have a job and wants to have a job, they should be able to get one.